But we wanted to start tonight by just acknowledging that all of us have different experiences as we're coming in this room. And this conversation means different things to each of us. Um, for some of us, um, we're coming in here and we're passionate about legislation and we're passionate about a bill and um, and we need to be passionate about those things as followers of Jesus. Um, for some of us, this is a very real lived out experience for us. It might be for us or for loved ones, um, but there's weight that we carry with that. And so what we just wanted to lay as a foundation is that of the Father's grace. And um, there is no judgment in this room um, and there there will never be any judgment in this room. And so we want this to be a conversation of grace, um, but we want it to be a robust conversation as well. So what we are talking about tonight is a topic that um, we will, some of us in this room, disagree on. Um, and tonight is about asking questions. Tonight is about investigating. Tonight is about um, about having um, Andrew um, come in tonight, Andrew Sloan come in and, and join us and just present ideas and thoughts and get us thinking as a community. Um, and then it's about how we act after that and how we how we research after that. Um, so that's the foundation that we want to we want to come as a posture tonight. Um, is that it's one of grace. I think you pretty much covered it. It's just that knowing there's probably different things that people carry in some with deeply personal experience and exposure to abortion, um, whether personal for people that they know or people who have maybe not had any contact with anybody, have a lot of thoughts and opinions, but maybe haven't ever seen it face to face. And so it's just acknowledging that, that people walk in with very different experiences and very different um, postures and exposures to this and, and coming in all together to have that respectful conversation together as well. Yeah. Um, the way that tonight's going to run, um, we're going to um, introduce Andrew in a second, um, and he's going to present to us for around half an hour, um, and then that's going to give us around 45 minutes to, to have a Q&A session. Um, the way the Q&A sessions will work is my phone number will be on the screen, um, so if you want to put that in your phone now, um, the way that the Q&A sessions are going to work, when Andrew is presenting, um, there's going to be lots of things that, that may go through your mind. You might have questions. There might be things that Andrew brings up that you go, oh, I would have loved him to have delved deeper into that or I'd love more information on that. Um, there's 45 minutes where Andrew is open to answering anything. Um, and what we'd love from you guys is to, to send those questions through um, as a message. And what we'll do is we'll collate those, those messages. Um, there'll probably be some common ones that we'll get. Um, but what this does is it gives us permission to kind of ask anything. Uh, we won't use your name if I have you in my number. If I don't, well, you're anonymous. Um, but... But what it does is it gives us permission as a community to ask any questions that we'd like and to delve deeper um, in this. So my number will flick up a few times um, throughout Andrew's presentation, but I'd, yeah, grab your phone out and put the, the number in now um, so that we can uh, we can do that. And then the other thing as well, um, if you find that there's different issues or things that maybe are brought up in that talk um, that maybe um, you've been wrestling with or we're talking about past experiences or um, things that you want prayer for, we'd love to be able to pray with you guys tonight as well. Um, so throughout the night um, and even after the night, there'll be an area over with the couches with a couple of us that are there willing to pray for you, um, obviously with the utmost level of confidentiality and love and grace. And also um, if there's someone in the room that you would like to ask prayer for, don't be afraid to ask for that. Um, or throughout the weeks afterwards or the days afterwards, we can um, we can do that as well. Um, can we give Andrew a um, warm round of applause as we welcome him up? Thanks. So, Andrew, we're just going to... A few questions for you before we start off. 
Sure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Uh, yep. So uh, I've been married for 33 years. We have three adult daughters, uh, Eleanor, Laura and Alexandra, uh, and the eldest two are married. Fantastic. <coughs> What does a uh, typical week look like in the life of Andrew Sloan? Oh, strike. Um, yeah, almost. Um, if I kind of average it out and fudge a bit. Um, so I teach at Morling College, um, which is down the road a bit, um, and I spend probably four, um, four days a week in the office or in classrooms, talking with students, teaching, doing a bunch of things like that. G'day. Um, I see a few familiar faces. Is that um, one of your favourite students, Sam Genovese? Um, there's a thing called tactful silence, Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, well done. I agree. Um, yeah. Um, and I often spend um, the other day at home um, reading, thinking, writing, because that's kind of part of my job, which is really cool. People pay me to do that. Um, the, if, I'm genuinely interested in this question. If the last... Uh, if you were to open your Spotify right now, you have Spotify? Uh, yeah. How do you listen to music? Uh, normally iTunes. iTunes, sure, sure, sure. Um, what's like, over the last few days, what have you been listening to? Oh, um, if you haven't come across, um, Holy Holy's third album, um, you really need to listen to it. Does anyone listen to that? Yeah. Evan, well done. <laughs> Excellent. All right, there's a shout out. Yep. La- last two songs are killers. Yeah, great. Mm. Anyway. Clearly there's, clearly there's some extra listeners that are going to come through this week on that. Um, so you might be delving into this a little bit later, but I'm curious, what's your experience or um, dealing or exposure to abortion um, over your career? Um, so um, theologians tend not to be directly involved in that kind of stuff. Um, but before I was involved um, as a lecturer in theology, I trained in medicine, and before that, I worked as a nurse's aide in a private hospital for a while. Um, and there were quite a number of women who came through that private hospital um, who were having terminations of pregnancy, um, and I was involved in their care. Um, as a doctor, um, I only worked for a couple of years, so I didn't have a lot of experience, but you have that kind of experience both in training and um, in a clinical setting. Um, been involved in pastoral ministry, so... There have been a number of people I've known who've um, had uh, terminations of pregnancy or uh, also a number of women who've had miscarriages, which is something we don't often talk about, um, where it's an unintentional accidental loss of pregnancy and that can be um, a very painful thing for people and it's often not spoken about very much, um, so that kind of stuff. That's great. Um, we might pray for Andrew, so if we as a community could, uh, could join with me as we pray. Father, we want to we wanna give you tonight. We want to acknowledge your goodness. We want to acknowledge your sovereignty. We want to acknowledge the love that you have for us as your people. Father, we want to thank you for Andrew. We want to thank you for the character that he has, for the heart that you've given him, for the passions that you've given him, and for the mind that you've given him. Father, we thank you that he is coming here tonight, um, not as a man with all the answers, but a man with a lot of wisdom and a man who's thought heavily on these topics. So, Father, I just want to pray that you would give Andrew the words to speak tonight. I want to pray that you would give us hearts that are open, ears that are willing to listen. And, Father, we just want to thank you that you're a God that is good. 
Father, we pray over tonight. We thank you that your spirit is present with us. And we just pray that everything that we do tonight would be for your glory. In your great name. Amen. Thank you. Um, so I want to start perhaps in a slightly odd place, given, given what we're talking about. I want to start by, by saying initially that Christianity is a life-affirming faith. But it's a particular vision of life that we affirm. It's a vision of life in relationship. It's a vision of life with other people. It's a vision of life enmeshed in community, embodied in a good world, living in the presence of a good and life-giving God. That is at the centre of who we are, how we understand ourselves, how we understand and navigate our way through the world. Now, when I talk with people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, lots of questions come up about how Christians see the world, about this vision of life in community, of how we seek to live in the world in which we find ourselves. And, as you could expect, particularly given recent events in the political landscape, two of the most pressing issues relate to the beginning and the end of human life. Abortion and euthanasia. The Euthanasia is something that you'll be covering in a couple of weeks' time, so I won't be talking about that tonight. But these are two very difficult sets of questions about which Christians are often seen as reactionary, as restrictive, as really only interested in interfering in the lives of other people trying to tell other people what to do with their bodies and with their lives. And that's particularly problematic in relation to abortion and some of the history, if you like, the dark and fairly greasy history that Christianity has had in its relationship with women and the control of women's bodies. But that's where we find ourselves. When we're thinking about abortion, we're thinking, amongst other things, about what is happening with women and their bodies. And this, as you'd be aware, has become something of a hot topic. We might slip on to the next slide. Um, if I wave my hand like this, can I get you to move the slide on? If I've done the wrong thing, I'll wind it back. Anyway. So you're, you'd be aware that um, the New South Wales... Parliament is seeking to follow other states in Australia in decriminalising abortion. Now that has understandably generated vigorous and often uh, heated, shall we call it discussion? I don't think we will. Um, as has happened in other states as well. Um, you can see some of the, the pictures that we've uh, seen in the media of confrontations between different perspectives and very often that's the way it ends up. It ends up not with any kind of reasoned discussion but people standing in each other's faces with their fingers wagging on one side or another. And some of this has been particularly triggered by the 
proposed legislation that's now before the New South Wales Upper House. So um, for those of you who are interested in the law and such matters, um, this is a fun bit. For those of you who aren't, uh, well, just cope. <laughs> so the bill in question, there you go, is the Reproductive Health Care Reform Bill 2019. Don't you love the sexy titles that politicians give to these things? Anyway, it was tabled by A.H. Uh, Greenwich, uh, a Member of Parliament, with the backing of the Premier. An amended version of that legislation is currently being considered by the Upper House. It has some basic provisions. So it provides for a medical practitioner to perform, um, if you move on, to perform uh, the termination of an uh, unborn baby up until the 22nd week of pregnancy. It also provides for a medical practitioner to perform the termination of an unborn baby, this is the language of the bill, up until birth, provided they have consulted with another practitioner who agrees that in the circumstances it should be performed. The bill also allows for conscientious objection. Now that's a particular matter that's particularly important for practitioners in the area. Um, however, a practitioner who objects to performing the procedure themselves must either effectively refer someone who comes requesting a termination of pregnancy or provide information about an alternative provider to them. Now, that's basically what the bill's about. Clear enough? So, it seems to me that there, there are some problems with the way this bill has been framed. Uh, it's less problematic than legislation in some other states, but problematic nonetheless. One problem is that it doesn't really address the question of high quality and readily available support and counselling for women considering terminations. Uh, nor does it address a matter which I think is of some concern. That is the question of coercion. Now, it, it tends to treat, as most legislation does, it tends to treat the matter as if there is a woman who is coming entirely off her own bat considering this response to finding herself pregnant. Now, sometimes that's the case. But very often there's a, there are a whole bunch of other people involved and it may not be that she feels entirely free to make a decision one way or the other. The legislation doesn't acknowledge that. That, it seems to me, is problematic. Nor does it satisfactorily cater for the concerns some doctors and other practitioners have about um, uh, complicity in what they see as a morally illegitimate action. Now... Here's how it works. Now, I, I personally would not have these concerns, but a number of people do, that if they were to refer a woman, so someone decides that someone is of the view that they're not in a position morally to engage in the termination of a pregnancy in um, uh, these circumstances. Many people are of the view that to then refer her to somebody else or provide her with information about those services is to become morally culpable in that decision process. You follow? Now, I'm not of the view that it's the case, but a number of people are, and the legislation does not really account for that. 
in as much as it requires either effective referral or provision providing that information. Now, as I said, I disagree with them about that matter, but it nonetheless doesn't account for those questions of conscience. There are a bunch of legal questions associated with this. I'm not a legal scholar, um, so uh, you can ask the questions if you like. You can text them to Luke and um, he'll probably answer them. <laughs> what I want to do is think about the, the moral questions around abortion. But always when we're asking about the morality of something, we need to know what we're talking about. So, what are we talking about? Well, here you go. Abortion is a deliberate termination of a pregnancy by medical or surgical means. Now, both are possible. Most abortions in Australia are still surgical. That is, it involves um, generally day surgery. Most abortions, about 98% of them, occur in the first 22 weeks of pregnancy. Um, we actually don't have clear data on the number of abortions performed in Australia. Um, it's only reportable as a Medicare item. Um, there are complexities around that. It's probably about 70,000 performed across the country per annum. And the figures have been roughly static or in slight decline uh, for the last decade or two. So that's what we're talking about. When you think about something like that, what are the options? Well, to, to put it simply, the answer, the question, the um, responses are yes, no, or maybe. Okay? So the, uh, uh, the yes notion is often called pro-abortion or pro-choice. And that is the idea that, uh, abortion should be on demand. Um, Strictly speaking, on the basis of either the mother's or the baby's interests, but effectively on demand. And that's the view that is reflected in the proposed law. So yes, the alternative is no. And that's basically an absolute prohibition of abortion, with the exception generally of the case where uh, the mother will die if uh, the procedure is not performed. So something along the lines of an ectopic pregnancy, do you know what that is? Some of you do. If you don't, we can talk about it later if you're interested. Uh, there are other conditions as well. The third option is um, abortion in a restricted range of more or less exceptional cases, a severe congenital defect or a serious risk to the mother's life or other conditions. Now, what I'm going to do is briefly outline the arguments for the first two perspectives before outlining a case for the third, which is my own view, um, and we can talk about that a bit more. So, uh, onto the pro-abortion case. The main argument here rests on a woman's rights and generally also her well-being. The idea is, yep, uh, that a woman has a right to control what happens to her body. Uh, pregnancy is something that happens to a woman and she is the one who ought to have decisions about uh, what happens with it. Any limitation of that right by others is just wrong. 
In addition, in terms of women's well-being, banning abortion is dangerous. Um, the well-known risks of backyard abortions, as they're called, so illegal abortions and the very high complication rate from it. There are a bunch of other arguments relating to the status and well-being of the fetus. Um, so, um, the fetus, it is, it is claimed in this view, does not have a right to life. Or, if it does, it's a relatively thin right, which is readily overwhelmed by the mother's rights. Some would argue that there are some babies that don't, that do not have a life worth living. And if their life is not worth living, they shouldn't be subjected to it. Um, and so, we have the case for abortion. Um, and you have some people who are fairly vocal about that. Um, the anti-abortion case, here it is. The main argument here relates to the fetus's right to life. Now, we'll come back to this in a sec, but please notice that here we have the argument set up as a, a war between rights. Yep, the rights of the mother or the rights of the baby. Um, we'll come back to that. The fetus, it is argued, is a human person and most people who hold this line believe that it's a person with the full rights of personal existence from conception. Abortion, then, is the wrongful taking of an innocent person's life. And for some, they would count it as murder. Not everyone who's um, against abortion counts it as equivalent to murder, but some do. Neither a woman's rights nor the future interests of the fetus overwhelm this right to life. It's an absolute. Yep. So that is, it's something which is non-negotiable. Everything else has to go by the board in the face of this absolute right. Now, there are other arguments um, relating to the well-being of women and of society. Um, abortion harms women and their interests, and we might come back to that. It also distorts the nature of human community, and there are a number of disability advocates, for instance, um, who are, are quite concerned about the current practice of abortion. Again, people are fairly vocal uh, in their support of this particular case. So they're the two, if you like, um, I guess you'd call them extreme, although, anyway, they're the two poles of opinion. Now, in my view, if we're trying to figure something like this out, the, the place where, where we should go, it might not be where we end, but it is where we should start, is what the scriptures have to say. And so, what does the Bible have to say? Well, happily or unhappily, uh, nothing directly at all. Um, abortion is not directly referred to in scripture as far as I'm aware, ever. There's a bunch of stuff about irreducible human dignity. There's a bunch of stuff about the protection of the vulnerable. But there is no text that directly addresses the question of abortion. That is, the deliberate abortion of a fetus. Now, um, Bible nerd moment, that's actually interesting in itself. Because if you know anything about ancient cultures and the laws that governed them, 
every other culture of which we have documentary evidence says something about abortion. The Bible doesn't. That's interesting. Um, it's not a. It's not as if nobody had thought about it. It's not as if it was never practiced. So the silence is not the silence of ignorance. There are, however, some texts and biblical themes that can be brought to bear on the issue. And the question is how much bearing they have. So the first is from Exodus. Um, I'm not sure. How, how many of you have done any reading around this question, um, looking at texts and the like? A couple of you. I'm not the only Bible nerd, so that's okay. So Exodus 21. Um, there's, uh, there's a text. I'll let you read it. Now the question that is debated is what harm is being considered here? So the circumstances, there are a couple of blokes fighting and for some reason they drag a pregnant woman into it. Um, we're not told why. Seems like a particularly horrible thing to do, but they do it nonetheless. Um, and there is some injury, something goes wrong, right? Now the question is, the injury which must be compensated for, either by fine or if it's a serious offence, um, uh, life for life, does it include harm to the mother only or does the death of the baby count also as a harm? Um, it's not altogether clear, but... One of the things you need to recognise is, is that this is a text that, that was operating from about 1500 BC for the next thousand years or more and on. It's really only in the last, what, four decades um, that a very premature infant had any chance of survival whatsoever. Um, a child that was born certainly before 30 weeks of pregnancy would almost always die prior to neonatal intensive care units and the like, right? So it seems to me that given that the text presupposes that the woman has miscarried, that the baby has come out, and that unless it was very late in pregnancy, the child would inevitably die, it seems to me that the harm being spoken of here is most likely additional harm to the mother. Do you follow? There is just a matter of what the circumstances would have been. So that passage doesn't help us. It doesn't help us also because this is accidental miscarriage anyway. It's not a deliberate termination of a pregnancy. So, so far so bad. Psalm 119 is uh, another text that's often referred to. Um, and again, um, this is probably a little more familiar to you. But there it is. So what this passage talks, I mean, it's poetry. So one of the things you need to figure out is what is the poet doing with these, with these words? Um, and the primary thing that I think the psalmist is doing is recognizing God's concern for 
and involvement in every phase of a person's life. But the question is, does that, does this text tell us that we have a human person while being formed in utero? I'm not persuaded it does because it also speaks of knowing a word before it's on our lips. So God can know stuff before that thing actually exists. Does that make sense? God knows the days of our life. They were all written down in God's book before one of them came to be. So God's knowledge of something extends before it comes into existence. Does that make sense? And so God knowing me in utero doesn't prove that there is a person being known. You follow? It may be that what God knows is something before there's a person. Right? Um, it doesn't help us. Final passage um, is from the Gospels. Um, uh, so you may know the bit where um, uh, pregnant Mary comes to pregnant Elizabeth's house. Um, Elizabeth is six months further advanced. Uh, and John leaps in her womb and it is seen as an acknowledgement. And so people claim that this indicates that both John and Jesus are persons in utero. Again, I'm not sure that that's what the passage says. There's there's a thing called, um, fancy word, phenomenological description, ordinary word, everyday description. What time did the sun rise this morning? Someone? Sorry? No, it didn't. The sun never rises, ever. The earth turns so that the sun becomes visible. Right? I know. Everyday description, right? And so the baby leaping in her womb is a description of what's going on. She's not making a claim about the moral status of John. She's making a claim about what she experienced and recognising that this is a sign of the significance of Mary's visit. Do you follow? And it's that the mother of my Lord should come. So once again, the passage doesn't help us. So that means that the, the, the Bible, now this isn't a problem with the Bible by the way, we have a bunch of questions which are important questions that we need to figure out that the Bible doesn't directly address. Okay, um, what we then need to do is on the basis of what we know about God, on the basis of what we know about the story into which we have been called, figure out the best way of understanding things. You follow? Now here's the thing. It seems to me that the the main ways of talking about this are unhelpful. So if we move on, I, I would like to reframe the question. It's as I said earlier, it's generally presented as a battle of rights. A woman's right to control her body, a fetus's right to life. I have sympathies with those views, but I'm not persuaded that either frames the question in the best way. Now, the first is, uh, if we can uh, move on, first is, because I'm not actually persuaded, um, sorry for the execrable pun, uh, that we can be dead certain about when human personal life begins. 
Scripture doesn't give us any clear indication. I think Scripture is the prime rule of faith. Um, it doesn't tell us. I think the scientific and the philosophical arguments suggest fairly strongly that human personal life does not begin at conception. Um, things like identical twins and a bunch of other things suggest that. We can talk about that later if you like. The pro-life view, however, presupposes that we know exactly when human life begins and that's when it happens. Secondly, um, it seems to me that while Christianity really, 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 really needs to lift its game on the valuing of women and their freedom, let me be plain about that, the underlying understanding of human existence in the pro-choice view seems to me to be misguided. It treats humans as isolated entities, kind of the aim of life is to be as unconstrained by other people and their interests as possible. And that strikes me as not only a, an arid, a, a joyless understanding of life, it also seems just plain wrong. It seems to me that more, um, more fertile territory, sorry, um, for the conversation can be found in the notion of a Christian commitment to welcoming life. God is, as I understand God, the one who creates and sustains life and delights in it. As a Christian, I welcome life for all its complexities and inevitable tragedies, and I welcome it as a good gift of a good God. Abortion, as it's practiced in Australia and as the legislation before the Parliament um, would shape, doesn't seem to me to fit with that kind of commitment. Now, I honestly don't know whether, say, a three-month-old fetus is a human person. Human tissue, yeah, of course. A person, I don't know. And despite all the theological and philosophical and medical arguments I've come across, and I've come across a few, I don't know how we could know. What seems clear to me is that our story as people and of God's concern for, God's knowledge of, God's care for us, begins long before we're born. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And a simple dismissing of any concern for the developing child in that story seems to me to be a little casual and cavalier. It also seems clear to me that in the normal course of events, a fetus is one fairly essential stage in God's giving us the great gift and, as a parent of daughters, terrifying responsibility of welcoming another person into the world. Affirming life, welcoming it as a gift, it seems to me fits poorly with aborting a child because it's unwanted or complicating or would mean major changes to our life plan. However, it seems to me that there are also times when it's a tragic necessity. Say when the mother's life is at risk, which does happen. Uh, other times when it's a tragic possibility. Say rape or incest, 
or a fatal fetal abnormality. It's always, I would say, tragic, and it's to be mourned. It seems odd, then, to adopt it as a deliberate strategy, especially one in which it seems to become almost a de facto contraceptive of last choice. Now, as Christians, we need to do a lot more and a lot better than the tut-tutting and pointing of the finger, uh, which is often where we're seen. If we are about welcoming life, then it seems to me that everything we have to say needs to be grounded in this. The creation of communities in which life is welcomed for all its messiness communities in which we join with people in their struggle to embrace life rather than standing where we're often found at a disapproving distance. That, it seems to me, is what a Christian ethic requires. There's a piece by Laurel Moffat. Um, I came across this through the CPX um, website, if you know them. They've got some really cool stuff. This was one of them. Um, uh, she wrote a piece specifically on the, the debates around abortion in New South Wales recently. And she says this, and I just want to read it because I think it's fabulous. And I'll finish with this. The Christian ethic works itself out in our society in a myriad of ways. It springs up in the creation of hospitals, schools, homes for women fleeing domestic violence. It bubbles up in the care of the dying, the infirm, the elderly and those living with dementia. It splashes out in clubs for people with Down syndrome, care for children with nowhere to go and lunches for people with no food to eat. The Christian ethic runs through our society under its surface like a secret river that pools in places of uncommon good for the common good. While it may be tempting to crowd out this ethic in regard to abortion, if we do, we may find that we have undermined the very ground beneath our feet. She goes on to say, we need more uncommon good in our world, not less. We need more expressions of care for one another, not fewer. The outworking of a Christian ethic in our world is big enough for all of us. For babies not yet born and for women in search of a choice, the Christian ethic seeks out the protection and care and support of life in all its diverse ways, in all its beauty and pain and discomfort and complexity. It should worry us, worry us all, when the best solution proposed to any problem and the best expression of care that can be conceived of is death. We need laws that can think imaginative, creatively, humanely about the complex issues of our life together, including the complex issue of abortion. And I stop. Thanks, Andrew. It's um, 
yeah, it's not too late to be messaging questions in. So as we as we talk, uh, feel free to message them in, and uh, we'll bounce as best we can. Um, Andrew, there's a lot of varying questions here, but I think the first one that um, we might push into, you you touched on um, when life begins. Yep. Could you give us um, give us more on that? Sure. Um, so as I as I said, there we could say some more about what um, what the scriptures have to say, but uh, I'm of the view that the Bible doesn't give us clear information on when uh, human personal life comes into being. Uh, there's debate about that, but um, uh, so I'm of that view. Um, uh, the reasons why I'm convinced that it's it doesn't make sense to speak of conception as the beginning of a human life is. Amongst other things, there are two particular phenomena, uh, two particular things. One is identical twinning. So, um, are any of you identical twins or do you know? Yep, there you go. So, you began life, uh, sorry, this is going to get messy. You began life um, as a single sperm, a single ovum, a single conceived cell. It's good there you go. <laughs> um, yep, you, you really wanted us to go into this. Um, uh, and at some point, generally in about the first eight days or so, um, often before that, about the somewhere between the four and thirty-two cell stage, if I remember correctly, um, it divides, um, and you get two, or sometimes three, but generally two, human persons as a result of that one conce- one single conception. Yep. It seems, and there's no way of telling, as far as I'm aware, there is no way of telling whether a single conceptus, the term is, is going to go one or two ways, right? So it seems odd to think that at conception, one person, then one, two, three, or four days later, suddenly two people, right? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, there's another thing, um, uh, is a thing called an hydatiform mole, Anybody know what that is? Well, I can say what I like. Yes, you do. Good. No, I can't say what I like then. Um, it's it's a pregnancy that's gone wrong. Okay, um, it's a it's a weird mixture of fetal and maternal cells, um, and it's a it's it's a dangerous thing which, um, if left untreated, um, can kill people. Right. Um, it, it seems odd to me. Now, this isn't a knockdown, drag them out argument, but it seems odd to me to think that this which started off as an ordinary conception turns into this life-threatening condition. Okay? So it seems to me that we've got reasonable um, evidence in the real world to suggest that conception is not when life begins. Um, It seems unreasonable to me um, to say that, uh, say, the moments before a child is born, it's not a human person and as soon as it draws uh, its first breath, it becomes a human person. That doesn't make sense to me. But when exactly between conception and first breath um, a human person comes into being, I don't know. And that, how we define that has a huge, um, plays a huge, uh, um, carries a lot of weight in terms of this whole discussion, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, if for for people who believe that um, a human personal life begins at conception, then um, 
all abortions are always a very great moral wrong. Sometimes they are a less great moral wrong than the alternative if they're both going to die. Um, for someone like me who doesn't believe, then believe that we have a human person from conception, then it means that while abortion might be, as I said, tragic and not something that anyone would lightly choose, there are circumstances in which it becomes much more morally imaginable, if that makes sense. Um, because it's not a person who's being sacrificed for somebody else's interests. Do you follow? So just on that, before yeah. I hand over to Heather, um, why 22 weeks is one of the questions that we've got um, relating to what you're talking about now. What's the science that made it at this time, not earlier or later? Um, uh, it's fairly arbitrary. Um, so, um, um, let me try and, I'm try, just trying to remember my embryology. Um, so we've got, um, by 22 weeks, there's, um, reasonably complex, um, uh, central nervous system, um, um, uh, not a lot of, ne- um, do you know the term neocortex anyway? Not, not a lot of, the tissue that allows for uh, higher brain functions, um, that starts to really come in in the in the last trimester, where you just have effectively maturation of all the organs, which are now pretty much fully formed. So it's it's largely speaking that I think, and um, the other the other factor is that um, from about twenty four, certainly twenty six, um, a um, a premature baby can survive prior to that almost unheard of. Uh, from 28 weeks onwards, the both survival rates and the, the quality of life of those who survive becomes rapidly better. Uh, so I suspect that's that's what it is, but yep. it's somewhat arbitrary. No, it's good. There's a, couple of, there's a couple of questions in regards to, I guess, specifics about abortion and what yep. that entails. Um, one regarding where contraception stands in regards to abortion or the morning after pill and if that sort of comes under that umbrella yep. um, and then about medical versus um, surgical termination and its use. Yep. Um, so um, uh, the morning after pill, so uh, I had the um, happy experience of um, having a theologically trained uh, pharmacist um, in one of my classes a few years ago, um, and uh, he did some research into the pharmacology of the morning after pill. Cool. Um, uh, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that the morning after pill is not, in fact, an abortion agent. Um, uh, that what it does is prevent conception late, so within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, if you're interested, it has to do with the way it changes um, the viscosity of cervical mucus um, and the pH of the vaginal environment, which means that sperm don't survive uh, to get through the os cervix uh, up into... You, you want all this medical stuff, don't you? you I'm, finding, it? I'm finding it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Uh, so, so what it does is stop conception, okay? Um, almost, there's probably, it's about 98%, okay? Um Similarly, um, uh, so th- there have been concerns about um, uh, IUDs um, 
And again, uh, it seems seems to be that their predominant mode of um, effectiveness is the way that they change the uterine environment um, so as to prevent conception more than to prevent implantation. And then in terms of medical termination versus surgical termination, there's just a clarification question on what that would entail. Uh, I can't remember the name of the drug now. Are you something or another? Anyone? 486? Yep. Um, so what it, what it does is effectively, um, uh, uh, stimulate, uh, early delivery. Um, that's, that's what it does. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a non-surgical intervention. It's not without its complications. Um, uh, and nor is it painless um, but it's a it's a drug which uh, uh, induces uterine contractions and the, and the rest um, surgical normally involves what's called um, dilatation and curatage um, and typically medical tends to be more in the earlier phases it seems as opposed correct. to later on yep um, so in terms more of getting on the legislation side of things, what do you see as Christians' responsibility in terms of entering the conversation or conversations around legislation and how we begin to navigate something like the Reproductive Health Care Bill? Sure. Um, I think one of the most important things is to, to try... Uh, it's kind of like... Um, um, uh, it's Peter, isn't it, who, who, who speaks about giving an answer with gentleness and respect... I'm, some of the images that I've, I've seen and some of the conversations I've been part of, I did not think evidenced very much gentleness or respect. That, it seems to me, is... I just hate that. Um, because what, what happens is, no matter, what, no matter how clear our message might be, the meta-message, that which goes along with the stuff we say is deeply contrary to the gospel. That's how I would see it. That anything which doesn't... I think Luke put it well at the start, that we want this to be framed by grace. And if it's not framed by grace, it seems to me it doesn't fit very well with at least my understanding of the good news. So the first thing is to try and be as respectful as possible. Second thing is to recognise just how complex this is and how deeply it bites on people's lives. Um, Again, some of the people I've had conversations with seem to be of the view that um, a woman just wakes up one morning and thinks, I'll go down to the clinic and have an abortion. I don't think that ever happens. Um, I, I think it's very, very rarely that it's not a deeply conflicted decision. So we need to recognise that this is a difficult matter for everybody involved and not to think that people are treating it with casual disregard because they tend not to be. And then I think it's important to try and make our case as clearly as possible and as as winsomely as possible. So one effective thing, um, one of the things that has helped kick this up to the upper house with and for amendments to be considered, is for people to write well-constructed letters to local politicians. 
saying, yep, understand this is complex. Yep, understand this is a motive. Here are some concerns that I have about how this legislation is being framed. Now, um, here this might, I don't know, this, this might upset someone because nothing else I've said has. Uh, anyway, um, I'm, I'm not of the view that we ought to criminalise abortion. I think the evidence is pretty clear that in jurisdictions where it is a criminal act and in our jurisdictions when it was a criminal act, the evidence of harm done to women who felt they had no choice but to have an abortion was very high indeed. Um, uh, death from uh, infection and other complications um, and significant injuries as a result of the kinds of things that people would do. That, it seems to me, is reasonably clear. So making abortion a criminal act seems to me to be just bad law. But um, the provisions for allowing it need to be, I think, more carefully constructed than they have been. I think one of the... Uh, I've got a few questions around this, but I think this is probably where we, the definition of what we're talking about is really important. Um, you mentioned um, like termination in, in exceptional circumstances, um, and you define it as a tragic necessity, um, a tragic possibility. Can you talk more about um, about about that framework and, and those examples? So, for instance, the example of, of rape, um, medical circumstances, etc. Because I think the definitions on how we, on those aspects are really important. Sure. Um, so, first, where it seems to me to be a tragic necessity. Um, so I think an ectopic pregnancy is where um, uh, the sperm and ova uh, join, we have a conception, and rather than being implanted in the uterus, it's implanted up in the fallopian tube normally, uh, very rarely in the peritoneal cavity, normally in the fallopian tube. The problem with that is that it starts to develop um, a placenta, but the fallopian tube does not have the structures, uh, the, the muscular and other structures, to support a placenta. And so it will rupture and bleed and the chances of a woman bleeding to that are extraordinarily high. Um, there is no possibility of that fetus surviving. Uh, there's a very high pro probability that the woman will die. It seems to me that um, the surgical treatment of an ectopic pregnancy is, is mandated. Yep. There are other um, other cases where a woman's life is at risk. It might be, um, it's generally later in pregnancy, but there's a thing called eclampsia, which is a really, 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 really serious um, uh, disease state, really. The physiology just goes completely whacked, um, and the risk of kidney failure, um, uh, stroke, and the like is very, very high indeed. Um, uh, sometimes the only way of effectively managing that is to end the pregnancy. Okay, there are other cases, malignancy and various other things. It seems to me that in cases like that, um, it's it's necessary um, that this pregnancy be terminated, that this fetus die. It seems to me um, entirely 
uh, a morally acceptable option. Now, here, um, the stuff I'm about to talk about might be really hard um, for some. I've had numbers of conversations with people who've been, um, uh, who survived childhood sexual abuse or other forms of sexual assault. Um, it's not something that men very, uh, sexual assault of that kind is not something men have to experience so often. So um, please, if this is difficult, I apologise. Um, it is not unknown for women who've been raped to fall pregnant as a result of that forced sexual intercourse. It is not unknown for um, uh, children who have who are partially sexually mature to fall pregnant as a result of childhood sexual abuse. I think for a child who falls pregnant in those circumstances, abortion is generally preferable, partly because of some of the long-term, life-changing, irreversible, physiological and anatomical changes that will take place in a young woman's body before she's fully sexually mature, but brings a child to term. Um, uh, let alone the, I, for me, literally unimaginable burden of a child unwillingly bearing someone else's child. I think it's entirely reasonable for an adult woman who's been raped, who's found, who finds herself pregnant as a result, to terminate that pregnancy because she finds the prospect of bearing her rapist's child unendurable. Now, one of the reasons I can say that is because, as I said earlier, I'm not of the view that an, uh, early in pregnancy we have a human person in question. So it seems to me that in those circumstances, if a woman finds that an unendurable prospect, that an abortion is far and away the less horrible thing for her to endure than taking that pregnancy through the term. There's some of the some of the circumstances. And that is one where and I just want to even just stop on this moment and just even thank you for the courage for delving into this and talking about this, um, because the the details on the on the way you've defined um, defined that at the end in terms of rape, that's where like there is there would be disagreement. Like I know Randy um, Alcorn, for instance, um, and Wayne Gruden would disagree on that. Yep. So that that as you're saying comes very much back to um, your definition of life. Yeah. Okay, no, that's good. I, I, if I may, now, let me be fair and then let me be a little bit unfair. Um, to be fair, it's not only men who say that it's um, wrong for a woman who falls pregnant as a result of rape to have an abortion. But the vast majority of people who say that are blokes that look like this. Um, they're, they're men who've not had to endure those kinds of circumstances it's really 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 important I think that people like me have the humility maybe even it's not courage but sometimes it feels like it um, to be willing to put our opinions aside for a moment and listen carefully to what it's like 
to find yourself in those circumstances and to ask some harder questions about it. Because I think it's very easy for someone like me, in my extraordinarily privileged position, not to feel the weight of those considerations. It's a bit unfair, but there you go. And so when it comes to those, say, exceptional circumstances with things like, say, congenital abnormalities or something where the baby's quality of life is definitely not going to be there and it's found out while they're a fetus, what does the no side or what does the pro, um, I always get confused, pro-life side um, say in response to that? What is their sort of status? Yeah. So um, um, before I answer that, I want to, want to um, pick it apart a little bit. Um, I think we have to be very, 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 very careful about quality of life decisions. So um, um, one of the uh, one of the most common um, reasons for abortion on the grounds of fetal abnormality is Down syndrome. Um, and um, the reality is now again this um, this may come across as very glib. But the reality is that people with Down syndrome don't suffer as a result of that condition. Um, Down syndrome is a particular syndrome. It's a cluster of um, a bunch of things. Um, one, of the, one of the things that disturbs most people most is um, people with Down syndrome look different. Um, and they're, 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 if you like, the bell curve for their IQ is about 10 to 20 points to the left of the average, um, okay? Um, but people with Down syndrome don't suffer from the condition per se. There are, um, so we need to, be, need to be careful about what it means to think about those quality of life decisions. But there are other conditions, um, some truly horrifying conditions, a thing called Tay-Sachs and a bunch of other things, um, uh, where... Uh, in some instances, um, the abnormality is so great that the child will not survive through to the end of pregnancy. Um, and one of the things we need to recognise is that pregnancy is dangerous, um, even in the Western world. Um, um, so there are significant risks in bringing that, in continuing with that pregnancy, even though that child will not survive to birth. There are other conditions where the child will survive to birth um, and they will die fairly soon and fairly horribly. Um, I'm of the view that if that is identified uh, early in a woman's pregnancy, that the risks to her and the fact that this child will not get out of infancy suggests to me that on balance... Um, uh, an abortion is acceptable. But we need to be very careful because we also need to listen to, I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the disability discourse. Um, yep, some of you are. We need to be very careful um, not to, first of all, accuse all those who are um, in favour of abortion of a, a kind of hidden eugenics agenda. Do you know that language? Yep, we need to be very careful about that. But equally, we, we also need to be careful about some of the implicit messages that we give to people with disability, saying that 
the the life they find themselves living is one that is not worth living. So it's complicated. Sorry. Other questions we have, Andrew, um, can you explain what happens in a surgical termination? Um, I can if you really, really, really want me to. I'm not joking. I'm happy to do it, but um, I'm not. I'm not sure how much how much virtue there is in going through that. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm. Let me put it this way. Um, we'll wrap up things at some point. Um, if there are people who want to hear this, the, the details, I'm happy to talk about it then. That's good. Um, what are the psychological effects um, of an abortion on the mother? It varies, but one of the one of the interesting well, interesting <clears throat> one of the things that's recently come to light is just as with miscarriage, so also with a um, a deliberate termination of pregnancy, uh, there is very often a lot of grief and uh, sometimes guilt associated with it. Um, so um, um, Melinda Tankard Reese has done some work on that. I, I mean, her views are um, reasonably to the right of mine, but so what? Um, but she, I think, has uh, has gathered some important evidence about the just how traumatic it can be that. A woman who, who thinks she's fine with this decision finds herself quite deeply traumatised on the anniversary of the abortion. We need to, we need to recognise that. That's, that's one of the reasons why I have concerns about legislation which does not require that there's serious, there are serious conversations about what this entails. Not just as a surgical procedure, but as a social and psychological phenomenon. And I think, think that's too easily dismissed. And very often it's dismissed because it's people that look like this rather than people that look like that um, who are sitting behind the desk and giving the medical opinion. Not always, but often. Um, as Christians, we talk a lot about redemption. It seems harsh to say that termination is an acceptable way forward um, from a terrible circumstance. So I'm guessing in, in regards to something, uh, like in regards to rape, when we talk theologically and scripturally, like so much of what we see is around renewal, redemption, um, the taking of a life, um, even when it is from something so incredibly tragic and dark and, and evil, um, seems like a harsh um, step forward. Do you want to speak? You've spoken to that a fair bit, but do you want to just... Sure. Um, so uh, I, I think I used the language of a, a tragic possibility. Um, I, um, I, I am in gobsmacked awe of women who come to the view that um, they would bear their rapist's child. I think that is an act of... There's a category moral heroism. It strikes me that that's an instance of moral heroism. Here's the thing. I do not 
believe we can ever dictate moral heroism. While it's a glorious thing for um, uh, often, uh, while it's a glorious thing for someone to risk their life to save someone who's drowning, it's also, it seems to me, not a glorious thing for someone who cannot swim to throw themselves into three-metre surf and drown. It's moral heroism when someone has the capacity to engage in this action with a reasonable prospect of success. Right? I think there would be many women who could not engage in that act with a reasonable prospect of success. And I do not think it is ever anybody's right to tell her that that is what she should or must do. Not ever. If she finds herself in a position where she believes that is what God is calling her to do, then I am in gobsmacked awe and I think we as a community must muster all the resources we possibly can to enable her not just to survive but to flourish. Please, that notion of redemptive suffering is a really, 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 really important card that has to be played extraordinarily carefully. I'll stop there. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a, a few coming in. Um, uh, a fair few of the questions that, that we're getting later on. We've got 10 minutes. Um, so a fair few of the questions we're getting are around the legislation in particular. Um, so this question is, um, so even being imaginative and building care and protection into the legislation, uh, there are so many grey areas. It will never cover every situation a Christian m- might desire. How do we accept and deal with that? Um that's part of what it is to live in a de- democracy, I think. Um, there are a whole bunch of whole bunch of laws which I think are less than ideal. Um, the law uh, law's a complicated thing. Now, this this would be a good question to ask um, the clever person who's coming next week who knows about law and stuff because I don't. Um, uh, other than this, law both um, constrains and restrains behaviour but it also shapes a community's ethos, right? Um, um, But the law is an incredibly blunt moral instrument. Yep. What the law does is provide frameworks within which we must operate. It doesn't tell us exactly where within those frameworks we should operate. Does that follow? Does that make sense? It establishes boundaries. It doesn't tell us exactly what we should do within those boundaries. So I think, I think for, for me, um, I think uh, legislation which included some greater protections for um, uh, conscientious objection, uh, law which included um, uh, more careful requirements for um, consultation, for um, counselling where required, um, uh, which allowed for a clear expression of alternatives without them being dictated to or 
presented. Uh, it's it's really, 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 really easy for us to come across as um, holier than thou. It's a really good thing to avoid that. Um, so legislation which allowed for that is legislation that I think would establish a framework within which Christians could safely navigate. Others disagree with me on that. Um, yep. So it seems to me, um, given now, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm of the view that um, abortion ought not to be criminalised. Um, so that um, puts me in something of a minority, I suppose, amongst conservative Christians. Oh well. Um, uh, if it shouldn't be criminalised, then we have to come across, come up with. Um, a law which is going to allow for the best good to be done and the least damage to be done, right? That's what laws do. Um, I think something like that might might make the case. And so long as so long as um, we recognise that sometimes the alternatives that we want to propose will come at a cost for us. That is, it might come at the cost of our community's funding other facilities which allow for easier decisions by women who find themselves with a pregnancy that at the moment they don't want. Do you follow? Mm. This question, um, and often spoken about alternative to abortions, is adoption or foster care. What are your thoughts about, A, um, those options in Australia being readily accessible and functioning well, and B, how Christians are engaging in this end of the debate. It often seems that at times Christians are telling women to not have abortions, but we aren't engaging in offering legitimate alternatives and stepping up to care for children that women do not want or can't keep. Um, I would just say yes to the last part of that question. Um, that's true, although not entirely true. So there are a number of Catholic services, I think, um, if I remember correctly, um, I'm not sure if it's still operating, but for, for some time Hillsong had um, quite a um, uh, quite an effective program for the support of uh, women with unwanted pregnancies. Um, there are a bunch of other services, so there are some services around. Um, but um, I think we can and should do a lot better. Adoptions complex. Um, uh, I've I have. Um, uh, uh, friends who have three adopted children, um, and the um, the process is incredibly long and complicated, and that's not a bad thing. Um, where we know adoption um, and fostering is next to unheard of is with children with disability. Um, so given that some of these decisions are made surrounding children who've been determined to have some significant disability. Um, the chances of them being adopted are very, very, very low. Um, the chances of them being well fostered are also very, very low. So um, uh, I think we just have to recognise that and also to recognise that, um, as I said, pregnancy is not an uncomplicated or uncomplicating phenomenon. Um, it's relatively, um, I can't remember what the stats are, but I think it's something like one in 5,000 might be less um, in uh, women die in childbirth in Australia. But women 
die in childbirth in Australia. A friend of mine about, how long ago now, about 15 years ago, um, uh, she died in childbirth. Um, this was in a major hospital in a major Australian city. Um, it wasn't due to any mismanagement. It was just one of those things. So we need to recognise that um, pregnancy is not an uncomplicated or uncomplicating phenomenon. Um, and again, just recognise the weight of these decisions. I have um, two hypothetical sort of scenarios which I'd appreciate your insight on. Um, the first being if there's a husband and a wife with a pregnancy, um, that there's a differing side of opinion on whether the pregnancy should continue or not, how you would begin to speak into that. Um, carefully, <laughs> seriously, really carefully and slowly, and that would not be the first thing I'd do. If I had my wits about me, and I might not, but if I had my wits about me, the first thing I'd do is listen fairly carefully and try and understand exactly what's going on, not just in terms of their opinions, but what's happening in their relationship. Um, uh, there might be a bunch of things going on, so I'd, I'd, I'd want to try and be clear about understanding that as carefully as I could. Um, I'd also want to try and understand... Um, uh, whether there are particular notions of, of what's going on, so the status of the fetus, um, that may be what lies behind the differing opinions. Um, so my wife and I disagree on this um, matter. Um, that's right, we disagree on a bunch of things. Um, it, it never bit for us. We never had to make these difficult decisions. Um, um, I think if... Um, if it really came down to it, here I think I'd probably want to listen to my feminist friends and say, in the end, I think she's the one who has to bear the child. Um, it should be her decision in the end, I think. And in the second and final scenario, um, uh, a lady who's provided with medical advice to terminate her pregnancy um, as she had measles during the pregnancy. Uh, she refused to terminate due to her Christian faith and gave birth to a, a healthy child. I guess navigating the information provided versus pushing through and, and your opinion regarding that. Sure. Now, um, I'm trying to remember... Um, someone might have some someone might need to help me with this i'm trying to trying to remember what the particular complications of measles in pregnancy are what the what the risks are what the rates of those complications are and how severe they are um, um, so i um, i'd first of all probably want to get a bit of i'd want to look up that information to see what the risks are um uh, one of the things about medicine, my, 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 my dad was also a doctor. Um, one of the first things he told me when I started studying medicine was never say never. And also, never say always. Um, uh, it's always, everything is always likely or unlikely and varying shades of likely or unlikely, right? Um, 
other than we'll all, we'll all die. I can I can promise you that. Um, well, unless Jesus comes back, I suppose. But anyway, um, huh. uh, anyway, um, um, so it's always a balance of probabilities, um, and if there's a significant risk of very significant and um, uh, very significant abnormalities, um, then I would suggest that uh, abortion again is a possibility. Um, yeah, something like measles, I don't think the risks are so numerically great and the consequences are so inevitably horrendous um, that it would be something I would counsel for. There are other conditions where I would counsel for pregnancy. Still not my decision, but I would strongly recommend that abortion would be the preferable option. Andrew, you, um, we're going to land, come into land, but you lecture in ethics. Um, you're used to having disagreements in, uh, in controversial topics. Um, can you just speak into, as we, as we walk away from here, even as Christians, having a framework where we don't all agree on, on really controversial, really important issues. Um, there are things tonight that I'm sitting here and, and I am challenged by. There are things I disagree with you on. As Christians, how do we have a framework where we disagree on issues like this and uh, and and healthily engage in that? Um, there's a whole something um, something evangelicals. I, I count myself as one, by the way. Something that we do reasonably poorly, I think, um, is truth in love. Um, that bit, speak the truth in love, is actually truth in love. Um, do the truth in love. What we tend to do is abandon one or the other. Um, uh, we tend to so emphasise the pole of love that we kind of go light on what we see as being true. Other times we emphasise so much the importance of getting it right that we forget about love. I think truthing in love is what we ought to aim for. Um, perhaps one of the most important things is to is to recognise that while these are important things, they're not at the very heart of who we are and what we stand for. At the very heart of who we are, is not a bunch of stuff that we believe, although that's important. I also teach theology. Um, it's not a bunch of stuff that we believe. It's a person who has claimed us. That's at the centre of who we are. And that's at the centre of what we stand for. And it seems to me that most of these questions don't in the end call into question who it is who has claimed us and what it is that God has claimed us for. Does that make sense? So it seems to me then that, yeah, it matters. Um, I, I think what I believe on this stuff actually does matter. Um, and um, with all due respect, Luke, if we disagree, I think that you're wrong and that I'm right. Um, I mean, that, that, that's just what it is to believe something, by the way. You shouldn't apologise for that. If you think that you are right, then that means you believe it. 
And that means that somebody whose views are obviously contradictory to yours, you will think of, you'll think they're wrong. Okay. Don't pretend otherwise. Um, but equally, um, I, I don't have very many questions about the legitimacy of your relationship with Jesus. Um, not many. Um, um, I don't have many questions about... You did mark me quite low on a few essays. I think should have been a bit higher. So. <laughs> and you're wrong about that as well. Um, um, uh, yeah. Um, so I think it's really, 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 really important to remember that the, the main game is the main game. Um, and that the stuff that's not the main game, to say the frightfully obvious, is not the main game. Um, what we should be losing skin over, and we should be willing to lose a lot of skin over it, is the main game. Who Jesus is, what Jesus calls us to be and to do in the world. Demonstrating something of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Showing the welcoming love of the Father. That's the main game. We should be losing a hell of a lot of skin, a lot more than we do. The rest of it, yeah, well, um, that's that, that's something to spend the odd coffee or other beverage over. Um, as we walk away um, tonight, can you speak into um, just things that we can can look into? Maybe articles. I know there was a you might have a slide, but articles and um, you know authors and. Just people who, if we if we want to know more, if we want to engage with this more, uh, people that you'd recommend that we um, we look into. Sure. Um, so I put a few of them up there. The last couple, uh, Peter Singer's up there, um, not because I agree with him. Um, I don't agree with him on very much. Um, but Peter Singer, Australian philosopher and ethicist, probably one of the um, one of the most significant practical ethicists in the world today still. Um, uh, if you're interested in a view which is very much not a mainstream evangelical view, then Singer is someone to re- to read. Uh, and um, uh, Gordon Priest put together a book a little while ago responding to some of his ideas. If you're interested in, in alternatives, I'd suggest you have a look at Singer. Um, Maylander is up there. Uh, Maylander and Wyatt and um, uh, Megan Best. Megan Best is a... Um, uh, She's a palliative care physician. She works in Sydney. She's an Anglican. Um, I disagree with her. She's a fair bit to the right of me. But she, um, if you want a, a, a carefully considered conservative um, uh, pro-life view, um, then her book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, is a very good exploration of that. Uh, Mayland is a little bit more moderate, so is Wyatt. Um, in Wyatt's book, interestingly... Uh, he's come to a more conservative view. Um, he explains what his views were, what his views are now, and why he changed his mind. Um, yeah, that'll do. Andrew, thank you for your time tonight. Um, we're all very appreciative of your insight and your um, depth of thought and careful consideration of what you've put together tonight, so we really appreciate that. Um, as we mentioned earlier, there'll be people available to pray if that's something that people are um, uh, wanting um, to seek and we'd love to pray with you. And I'm just going to pray over us as we finish our night. 
Lord, thank you for um, the way that you speak to us and, and your heart on so many different issues, Lord. And I pray that we can walk away um, tonight having more insight on um, your love and your depth of care and your level of insight, Lord, that you have for us and for our lives, Lord. And I just pray that you'll be present with us as we walk um, walk out from here to carry both your truth and your love, Lord, in our interactions with people on this topic. And I thank you for the insight that you've given us through Andrew tonight, Lord. And I just pray for um, those of us who maybe came carrying in um, a more personal conviction or a more personal wrestle um, with this topic, Lord, that they could come away feeling restored by you, feeling spoken to by you and feeling comforted by you and by those around us in this community. Community, Lord, and we just pray that that can be, um, yeah, the mark of, of your handprint and your fingerprints on tonight, Lord. Amen. Andrew, thank you. Um, yeah, can we?